This is Common Stay Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Well, this week we held the inaugural Comms Day Wholesale Forum. It was our first dedicated event for the wholesale telecommunications space. Um, and it did really well. We had over 300 people come across the two days, um, which, which we considered to be a great success. And we heard from all the major players in the wholesale space, NBN, Telstra, Optus, TPG, Focus, Aussie Broadband, Superloop, Swoop, um, and, and many other companies, um, Symbio, um, uh, 2SG, uh, Lumia, Fiverr Connects, Nextop, you name them, they were there. But I thought it'd be really interesting to revisit the industry panel, which we held on day one. So basically, it was the big industry panel directions for Australian telecom wholesale. The panel was moderated by James Linton. Now, James used to be the director of corporate sales at Exitel before his, um, or, or his family sold that to Superloop. He continued with Superloop for a while in that position, and then he vacated earlier this year. And he's, he's um, now, shall we say, in between roles. So I thought he was a natural to moderate the panel. Um, and on the panel were um, Zia Badia, who's a partner with Oliver Wyman, uh, um, a analyst who's a, a regular contributor to Comms Day events, David Kennedy, who's the MD of Venture Insights, and, and a lot of you may know him from his days at Ovum, and before that as an um, advisor in the Richard Alston office during the Howard government years. Um, we had... Tristan Clash, who's the General Manager Wholesale National Sales at Focus. We had Symbio's General Manager of Products, Dylan Brown. We had Superloop's Chief Commercial Officer, Nick Pachos. And last but definitely not least, the Swoop Chief Technology Officer, Tom Berryman. So anyway, the panel goes for over 40 minutes, but it's definitely worth a listen. It covers the gamut of everything, right? NBN, through to 5G, through to business fiber, and uh, even LeoSats. Um, so a lot of territory is covered. Uh, set, aside, um, set aside 40 minutes, have a listen, and you'll definitely learn a lot. I know I did. So let's get started on NBN's SAU. So is the NBN on track with the new spectral access undertaking? Does anyone want to tackle that one for me? Mr. Patchels, would you like to do that? Hello? Um, I don't know what you mean by on track, James, but um, I guess there's a couple of ways you can look at it. Um, if we look at it from a consumer perspective, um, I guess the whole SAU is about bringing the consumer base up to 100 meg. If we look at the tactics that have been undertaken here, we're seeing that um, we're bridging the gap between the wholesale cost of five, uh, 50 meg and 100 meg. Um, and taking away some of the CVC benefit for, for, from the industry, moving up to the 100 meg um, speed. So effectively, what, in my opinion, what's happening is the NBN is going to drive, you know, it's there to drive speed take up at a cost to the consumer because the 50 meg price is going up and we know roughly, you know, is it half, 50% of the stuff sitting around the 50% base, so that's going to go up. But I think the important part for me is what does it cost the industry? And that's really important as us, as all RSPs in, in the room here, um, we're all struggling on the difference between the retail price and the wholesale price that we pay to MBN. And then what are the on costs? So when we look at going from 50 meg to 100 meg, what we've got to deal with is 
a fairly significant upgrade to our networks at the NNIs, um, at all the POIs, as our download speeds that our customers are expecting will double. So backhaul costs, we've got exorbitant costs on 100 gig NNIs um, that are outside of market pricing. I guess the, the SAU is not dealing with those in the short term. Um, and therefore, I actually think it's putting a lot of cost into the industry um, with us as RSPs dealing with that. Um, it's just another cycle. We know that when NBN was first put into market, you know, there was a stick approach. You had to, you had to um, get onto the NBN, otherwise your copper service was going to be disconnected. They went moved to focus on 50, which was really a carrot approach you know, get more um, and really drive that price up. And this round is another stick. 50, 50 meg pricing is going up, 100 meg, um, we're trying to drive the, I guess, the ARPU up. Um, but my personal opinion is the, the cost is going to be borne by all of us in this room. Um, and I'd like to see the NBN to start looking at what is it doing on trying to reduce costs for the RSPs to enable us to go and innovate more in the market, not just pass through everything through to the consumer. Thanks for that, Nick. Um, does anyone else want to add to those comments? I just wanted to add a, a, a remark about that. So I think that um, as important as the SAU is for the future of the industry, I think it's important to keep in mind that it is in some way, the second order issue. So what we're, the first order issue is actually the accumulated losses of the NBN, which is which the SAU is designed to claw back. That's actually the first order issue. Now, the SAU can do a lot of good in terms of rebalancing between the access capacity between different products in a way that can bring positive change to the industry. But just to pick up the point you finished on, I think the first order issue is, and it's something I think the industry must return to when the SAU is better down is this first order issue of the accumulated losses and whether it's actually realistic for uh, those to be clawed back over, over time plus interest uh, in a way that is going to suppress the take-up of this technology in both the consumer and business sectors. Thanks for that, David. Anyone else want to make a little comment? Yeah. No, just like from our perspective, um, not directly connected to NBN as well, um, speaking kind of the next layer down, people might go through one of these providers to access services. Obviously, anything that we think might be increasing costs on our end and making it more difficult to innovate um, isn't as good as industry in the end user at the end of the day. So while they are working the balance of where they can and us being indirectly involved in those conversations, be good to start seeing it move down for the consumer and the businesses because anything that changes uh, through to the end user and the whole summer. Great. What was the price of a hundred gig net in there, Dave? Yeah. Don't know. Top of my head, the forty grand or something ridiculous. Yeah, and one hundred twenty-one. What are those? Adds up, doesn't it? Um, so, what is MBM doing well, and what would we like to see them improve or change in the TC four space? Um, look, I think some of the automation and API-driven approaches that they've, that they've uh, pushed out to the market and to the RSPs is, is good. Um, 
you know, on the, on the list of things that they're doing well. I know Columns Day is probably all about highlighting these things that they don't do well. Um, but I think you, you've got to give them credit where credit's due. Um, and definitely, I think the response to the pandemic and, and that increase in throughput for that end user, whilst we're all getting sort of adapted to a hybrid way of working, was, was yeah, it, it, it should be credited to you know, that 40% Increase though that it came from a phone call from a guy over in Italy was, was quite interesting to hear today. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's that's something they are doing. No, I agree. When I was working at Exitel, I know that that forty percent increase in that CBC was a big life changer for our overage bill every month. Thanks to that, Tristan. Um, um, James, I think the um, the API, the automation approach around everything. Automated with TC4 is great. Driving down those support costs and the on costs and the onboarding costs of customers uh, for a low margin product is really critical, particularly as the, uh, the price is going to come up slightly. And we are going to wear that. We need to save that somewhere else. That's great. I'd like to have those comments. Um, I think we heard a couple of speakers say earlier that that kind of first interaction with end users is so critical. And the more times you're going to put them on hold or say, I'll get back to you or all of a ticket the more problems that you're going to have. Um, I think from a good perspective as well, um, just sticking that next layer out again, uh, there's a bunch of people up here that have NBN services, and from the wholesale layer, we're seeing more and more choice and more and more people that one layer down, um, which I think is also a good thing. Like um, a lot of the guys up here have some great products, and that back of what NBN built as well. So uh, there are there's a lot of good happening in this place as well. Thank you, Dylan. And let's put our, let's get our, our crystal balls out. What do we reasonably think the next SAUs are going to look like? Or maybe they could just tell us now, you know, guys in the room, but let's guess. Anyone want to have a guess? Come on, Nick. No, I think it's a bit early to tell. We've got to get through this one first. Um, I think, yeah, it's too early to tell, in my view. No, I would say, look. You guys are much more closer than us who observe it from the outside. I think principal approaches will keep, I mean, if you look at what's happening, principally uh, the focus of uh, providing more certainty to RSP, principally trying to focus on migration to higher speed broadband, uh, high speed tier space, that will happen. Principally also trying to look into the uh, cumulated losses and how they can be adjusted. So I think I personally see there is a positive movement in that direction. Whether that's enough or not, yeah, that's debatable. But at least uh, NBN is doing something to address the issues. But there's a lot more to do. Perfect. Thank you. That's it. Let's move on to the business fiber market. The first one, NBN is competing against private providers, both established telcos like Telstra and TBG, but also the new providers who are fibering up CBDs in major suburbs like DG Tech, Falconets and Nextop. Where is this all heading? Uh, thanks for including votes in the established fiber. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, all good. I don't know right there. Sitting here. And um, Opus, yes. And Optus. <laughs> um, it's an interesting question. Like, uh, where's it all heading? I think, you know, with MBN's entrance into the, the, the enterprise business you know, back in 2020, I think there was a lot of people that sort of stood up and said, does that really need to be overbuilt? You know, do we really need a separate sort of, you know, fiber connection into to certain buildings? Um, and ultimately what it did is, is changed, I guess, that most of the viability of, of building and expand to the natural, you know, 
um, I know that we've we've kind of gone and you know reassessed, I guess, what what that looks like for us. And we you know while we still build bottom networks, it, it needs to make a lot more sense, given that there's, there's that level of competition there with, with the NBA, uh, sort of trying to have that price point down. Where's it all heading um, with new entrants that are, that are coming into it? I mean, obviously they've got to keep on, um, you know, again providing that point of difference and having a d different class of service or a different product offering, you know, into these into these uh, into the metro areas. Um, but you know, I think Dave from Nextop gave a really interesting speech, and if you haven't watched it, uh, it was from Manuel March. It was actually really funny, but he was actually sort of using humour to, I guess, uh, mask what a, what a real kind of problem there is in building a fiber network. Is that it's just the cost of doing it has not come down at all, you know. So your your civil costs and you know Telstra Dutch recoverable works is still extremely expensive to actually roll out a, a full blown fiber network. So um, you can only imagine with interest rates rising and the way that inflation is going. Uh, I don't know how viable that's going to be for the new entrance. So it's, uh, it's tough. Yeah. Mr. Patrick, you look like you've got something to say on um, No, I think one of the things that we've got is there's a lot of complexity in the market and we see there's always opportunity for new investment to come in and simplify. You know, Raph's doing that at Fiber Connects. It's about how do we go and simplify the customer proposition. We get caught up on all this technology but fundamentally what we're trying to do is give a really simple service to a customer um, and try to grow the market opportunity that's there for it. So um, I think some of that overbuilding it, it could be problematic in terms of some of the metro areas, certainly providing access out to areas where, you know, private enterprises not investing is a good idea. Um, I guess one of the other things that comes out is, you know, if we're investing in infrastructure, what are we investing it for? And if the use case is a single use case, and that is just for an enterprise or just for consumer, it becomes problematic in terms of, you know, where, where, where we put those investment dollars. So traditionally run fiber, you can run many different services over it. In the consumer space, um, with what I like to call the ambient protection tax, we're really taking away any private investment on anything in MDU because they've got to pay the, you know, the RBS levy at $7.50. So in an environment or in market that, you know, ambient finished building, um, we are looking for investment. There's, you know, investment to be made. We've still got, you know, effectively a boat anchor being the, uh, you know, the ambient protection tax or the RBS levy. We're removing one use case out of the, out of the actual business case to build fibre. And then we're seeing quite rightly the the MNOs diverting all their investment into MBM bypass. So the 5G business case stacks up because it's not only a mobile proposition, um, it actually is an MBM bypass proposition. So when we put that in the context of the SAU and trying to move effectively a retail price up, what we're also doing is opening the market to um, wireless substitution and removing or making it very hard for fixed line operators to go and invest and get a return because of some, I guess, legacy legislation that was there to protect an MBM that is now complete. Perfect. Thank you, Nick. Thank you.
So Nick's partially responsible for my next question. Um, the current price for a one gig service on a retail level is about $800. I remember a few years ago, five years ago, a one gig service probably three, four $4,000 a month. Um, where do we see this going in the next couple of years? Like there's only, so it's probably going to go down, but as we've been talking before, the capex office costs of these aren't really changing. So where do we see retail prices in the business market going? Well, I don't think the retail price goes down without the wholesale price going down as well. Uh, you know, we're setting our prices today based on what it costs to deliver. Uh, but it, it is trending down, I think you're right. I don't have anything super intelligent to say, but, you know, it's got a great example of that with your, your, your fixed wallet. You just kind of bypass the, the fiber, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. But there's a difference between a broadband-type gigabit service and a, and a fiber-type or business fiber-type service. So, uh, but the demand is there. People want that speed and they want to pay less for it. It's a popular product. I think it comes back also to the investment case. If there's no new providers, there's no competition, there's no real driver for the retail price to come down. So, time will tell, I guess. I uh, know we'll touch on a couple of these topics later, but um, back when you see multiple people in the building, I know as a, as a wholesale buyer myself, you'd love to see multiple providers in that last month. Like, it gives you more choice, gives you more competition. When you only see that one access type there, you know it's going to be a hard slog, especially when you're up against some retail providers and retail offerings that are quite sharp. So as we see more and more offerings come in and compete in that space, and I'll be talking about Leo and wireless services like that later, naturally you're probably expecting the fiber providers to have to be more competitive again as well. But um, I don't know anything about the business cases that the gentleman over there was speaking about because, you know, we had to order that last mile and fiber stuff itself. That's a very interesting take on it as well, but you'd assume as competition increases, especially with new technologies, we're going to start seeing it move again. Thanks, Dylan. I guess also, um, Michael this morning was talking about about Fiber 250 Danny Garden Centre in Sydney, which is damn sharp as well. Don't know how he makes money on that, but <laughs> over a long period of time, yes. <laughs> um, we're seeing some recent offers that Telstra wholesale guys back there advertising 2510 gig. NBN's recently offering speeds faster than a gig as well. And I know TPG did their 10 gig city a few years ago. Do businesses need the speed today? It's a bit of overkill. Like, is it like a Porsche on George Street? They get out. Like, can you use it? Do you need it? Dick's had enough already, he's tapping out at that. Um, look, I think, I think businesses will always, you know, overfish. You know, in an expected sort of, you know, they'll grow into that bandwidth. But, you know, if I, if I reverse my mind back into the, the TPG days, uh, when I was working there, you know, we, we, they launched the, the five and four and a half product, and I think the average through somewhere in the mid thirties now, because it was kind of one of those products where everyone went, oh, geez, we, we really need that. So I, I think there, there will be those headline sort of speeds that people, you know, will grab people's attention, but, you know, do they, do they kind of need it now? Maybe not, but I think eventually we'll, we'll get there. You know, 10 gig to, a, to, a, to an office is, uh, is, is pretty important. What's the average throughput on a boat is 1,000 service normally? I don't know. I, don't, I couldn't tell you. Um, I, don't, I don't see those stats readily, but, um, yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I, I don't know. Well, so, did you want to yeah, yeah, I was just saying... 
Look, if it's more than business need, I think that's, that's probably the right direction. In most market where we have seen innovation happening, it's when you have a resource in access, especially connectivity is a basic resource, because that allows people within the businesses to experiment. So I think if it's more affordable and in access, that's probably good for the economy, for that matter, it's nothing, as long as businesses can afford it. From a, from a one gigabit to anything above, up to 10 gigabit, there's obviously an interface change as well. So right now it's difficult to tell people can't buy hardware, we have other constraints. Uh, but it's important to think about, are people going to take that up or are they just going to go with the gigabit service pieces? You know, it's more the support they need and the gear supports it, it's much easier. So I don't see it through. That's a good point, because no one's really going to move to the 10 gig stuff until the networking year for their office actually comes to a decent price point. Yeah, but I do think as an industry, we need to keep pushing for more and more bandwidth. Um, if you look at what are the land lagging indicators, like we talk about equipment costs um, or interface costs, when you look at what the vendors are doing today, they're moving to licenses that are throughput based. Yeah. Right? They take a long time to move their, their pricing strategies. And I think from our perspective, um, the more bandwidth we put in the market, that means that the vendors will eventually come to the come to the party. If we don't do it early, they're never going to get there, um, and therefore we just need to keep pushing forward. You know, it wasn't that long ago where we used to dial up internet at home just to download our email and said, "Why do we need ADSL?" <laughs> right. So, you know, I don't think we should limit, um, or maybe it should not limit what bandwidth's available. Thanks, Nick. I think we're covered business fiber market. Let's go to fixed wireless access, um, like home broadband via 5G. Um, is, is it good just for redundancy or is it a credible access medium in its own right? I think it's very credible, James. <laughs> I, I, I know you would then. <laughs> uh, look, it, it comes down to value for the customer, I think. You know, we, we see it very popularly. There's a lot of take up. People just want a good value service. And when we're able to offer something, it's, it's popular. Uh, reliability is the, the key getting delivering a reliable service it proves its credibility over time um, it's still a relatively new concept so I think that will just take a lot longer to get more traction acceptance yeah thanks we love seeing it as well personally it provides choice provides option love to see a couple of the other MMOs uh, push it out a little bit more as well. Um, a lot of fringe providers are out there supplying those services, but the more of it, the better, I think, in the wholesale space. I think there, there's a segment out there that can be better served by, uh, if you look at the consumer side of fixed wireless, um, there are offers that can be made much more cheaper, for example, than NDM, because there is a segment who may not be willing to pay for that, there's directors, pensioners, and others. So I think if you take from a segment need, it serves that purpose. But there is a there is a cap on total capacity it can serve. Uh, if this goes more than the 10 or 15 percent of the market in terms of capacity, it's economically not feasible at all. That is it. Okay. Um, for example, the TPG group companies heavily promote a full 5G service as comparable to MDN on all the websites I've been browsing lately. Do we think the others will follow suit and promote um, the fixed wireless offerings over NBN? Mr. Patras? Um, as an MNO, absolutely you would. I mean, the, the economics, it is fundamentally different. You've, you've sunk your capital in Spectrum, you've sunk your capital 
um, in tower building and upgrading to 5G, absolutely, you would bypass the business case. It's very simple. Why pay MBN 45, 50 bucks uh, per service if you charge a customer less? All that margin comes straight back to you as an MO. I think um, they also have a differentiator in terms of the you know the 4G backup right now. Um, I guess as a non-MNO, that's problematic for us, and you know um, it does help them differentiate from the rest of the market. Um, be good for us to see uh, you know a wholesale 4G, 5G backup solution um, that is commercially viable. Um, it's given away in the market for free today. Um, that is what the retailers expect. Fair enough, we might not expect it in wholesale, but certainly there's big gaps today in wholesale uh, in that space. Mobile has um, really taken over from a fixed voice line at home as well for most people. So where it's appropriate, I think it'll definitely overtake fixed line for data as well. Does anyone on this panel have a fixed line at home still? <laughs> I'm David. I was just going to actually reiterate something that was just said here about the, the importance, I think, of, of seeing this as a kind of a targeted product. Um, and there's a couple, a couple of reasons for that. Is one is that you can get the best margin improvement by focusing on those low-end customs. Um, but then there's also the sort of issue of, well, what might the regulator do down the track? You know, if it sees this... Uh, no share of market getting bigger and bigger. Now we we think that you know, it can become quite significant. So you know, up to a million in the long run isn't out of the question at all, and that assumes a reasonably aggressive promotion. Um, but if you look at the numbers, I mean, this reports two hundred thousand already. Um, TBG was eighty a while ago, and it's probably rising fast because they are promoting that aggressively. Telstra has never ever said how many they have. So maybe they're somewhere in between. You know. So you, when you put that together, you're kind of already over 300, well over. So uh, you know, a, a million over a, a period of say another five years, quite quite long. So yeah, I think it could become quite um, a significant part of the market. And there's a kind of a, a finesse there that the MNOs are going to have to adopt to make sure that they you know maximise their margin gain without it becoming such a factor in the market that they become subject to the same sort of regulation fixed basis. So I guess um I guess my last question's kind of been answered. Will it become an important part of wholesale? I think the answer is probably yes. Um, personally I think it's going to be quite interesting to see what maybe Superloop or Aussie do in the coming years. Um, Superloop's got two hundred thousand customers or and Aussie's got six hundred. And if they can keep a file of all their customers and usage to one of the three carriers, be quite attractive potentially to for them to wash it against what they can do 5G wise and maximise their margin there. Could all Superloop Aussie and other MNOs and also the Telstra Office and AFD, Tech TPG potentially. So on the 4G, 5G mobile track, what will the Telstra and TPG mobile network sharing deal mean for the industry? David? Well, our view has been all along that the deal was, would not be approved in its original form. Um, and we, there were two reasons we believe that. One was that, uh, and it, it all comes down to the ACCC's history of dealing with mobile regulation. So first, if you look at um, their views on infrastructure competition, 
Um, they and take, for example, the way they've looked at regional roaming over the last 15 years. I mean, three separate inquiries into regional roaming, and every single occasion have said, no, we're not going to do this because it would undermine incentives for infrastructure investment in regional Australia. Um, if you uh, if you look at the deal in its original form, well, I know that you know, there have already been some concessions made in the last week or so. Um, the, um, and then you look at the uh, statement of preliminary view. This issue about infrastructure competition is just front and centre. I mean, that preliminary views paper was, would have been music to because it's exactly what they've been arguing is the central issue. Infrastructure competition in the long run, and that's exactly what the ACCC have honed in on. So I think the ACCC would be quite concerned about any prospect of a, um, uh, of a reduction in investment incentives for infrastructure in regional Australia. Um, and I think that really is going to make it quite difficult for this deal to go through. The other thing is called the spectrum issue. And the ACCC has also been, always been very concerned about um, operators' access to spectrum and getting access to too much spectrum in a way that might unbalance the market. Now, it has been pointed out quite rightly that the government's view is that spectrum limits don't apply to the secondary market. Well, that's quite true, but it's not the government's opinion that counts in this case. It's the ACCC's opinion that counts. And they have always been very concerned about the spectrum issue. So that, to me, that's got two big issues with this deal, which I think are going to make it quite difficult for the deal to get over the line. And that doesn't mean there won't be a court, no, there could be a court case afterwards, and no, this could go that. The Vodafone PBD one took nine months, so we could still be talking about this in a year's time. But the, um, uh, but I, I think that um, it's going to be quite tough for TPG and Telstra to get this through. Um, and, the, and for the reasons I've said, and I also think that uh, you know that they're um, they're already starting to sort of back away from certain aspects of the deal because they they can read tea leaves. They've seen the preliminary report. They know what it implies. Thank you, David. See it? Did you have? Oh. David, if he even gets approved, what do you think is going to happen next? If miracles happen. If a miracle happens, well. Uh, I mean, look, that's a good point. Let's consider the counterfactual. It gets approved. Well, I think that's going to have implications for mobile regulation that go way beyond this deal. Because what would signal would be quite a change in the ACCC's view about infrastructure-based competition in mobile. Now, what, what happens when the next inquiry into regional roaming comes along and the ACCC's clearly shifted its position on the importance of infrastructure-based competition versus service? It's much more likely that regional roaming will get up. So I think this is a case to be careful what you wish for. Thank you. Um, next question. Should there be regulation to guarantee access terms for MVNOs? It's pretty unregulated. Not regulated at all. Remember that thing? I don't know if I was going to say yes on that, but I, I know from, a, from an MVNO ourselves, um, We'd love more access into that kind of thick layer of MNO. You know, it's still it's still very here's what you get, very commercially negotiated, not a lot of wiggle room to get in there and, and sometimes get a hard product with retail offerings. So the more help we can get into that space and, and get access to more offerings for our customers and better. Quite difficult at times, isn't it? Like a lot of them ask for exclusivity, so kind of stuck with one for three to five years. 
I, I agree with the approach of, of getting more uh, more access to a, a thicker MBO arrangement, but we've also got a pretty competitive commercial environment today, and regulation doesn't mm. always guarantee fair and even for everybody. Good point. So, what will 5G mean for wholesale? Right now, what the MNOs want it to mean. Uh, you know, it comes out of the commercial negotiations in that space and, and we get access to. So, what would you like to see? Oh, love to see something on par with everything we're seeing out there in the retail space. Um, you know, access to the input that it brings as well. Like, you know, right now, a lot of them are just limited to voice, your standard voice and data. You know, a lot of that kind of style access when it comes to fixed replacements. So potentially yeah. a speed tier is not just like a 5G access from the data bucket. So you may be a speed with potentially ABC and CBC as well. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, there's a lot of applications out there now for mobile numbers to be used, not associated with SIM cards as well. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot more call centers and, and things like that. You know, more SMS and voice connectivity yeah. with their offerings. And right now, that's only, that's only limited to MNOs. So they can get those numbers conditioned and get, and get full proper access to that. So kind of go all the way up and down that stack, to be honest. So what would we what would we what would we like to see the wholesale market do for budget? I mean, in simple terms, there's a market that's yeah, going to be you know demanding services. It'd be nice for wholesalers to have access to products at a commercially viable rate that are competitive in terms of their functionality, speed, features. Yep. Um, and being able to compete in the market against the MNOs, um, who ultimately get the bulk of the revenue anyway. Um, at this point, history shows that access to mobile networks uh, for MVNOs is typically a secondary market, right? So we're set up to go and fight in a very, very small part of the market. Um, and as the market gets more mature, that market sort of slowly increases through wholesale, um, but it is heavily controlled um, from the primary market being controlled by the MNOs. Thanks, Nick. Um, Dylan, are we going to say something? It's holding my. Yeah, I think I'll be holding my. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's move on to LeoSats. Um, how important will they be to the consumer and business markets? I think really important. I mean, any type of new, you know, technology or access type that we get available to the Australian market is, is got to be a good thing, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone can can deny that. Um, but definitely, some of those uh, industry segments where you've got a, a, a you know a three tier uh, technology stack, you might have a fiber service, you know, an LTE service, and then you know a Leo back as well is. is is um he's going to provide that sort of level of redundancy that, that a lot of people will be looking for. Because you guys are focused still a bit with that core headland way, don't you? Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. It's it's interesting. Like for you know when we did a, a small little expression of interest into wholesale customers would uh, be interested in a in a wholesale Leo type service, we were here on day that we had sort of thirty five to forty wholesale customers immediately kind of say, yep, we'd, we'd sign up like. What can we get access to? So I think that definitely the demand is there, um, and then yeah, I, I think yeah, it, it will definitely provide a, a more access to our, to our, yeah, to our business. 
think you had my next question. But I'll talk. I, I do. Um, I think Leosats are a great opportunity. Uh, we live in a really interesting country geographically, and there's a lot of people live in a lot of different types of places. Um, and being fiber or fixed wireless or Leosat, it's great to get people on it. So if we can deliver ubiquitous over the top services, yep. that's a win for consumers always. Great. So I was just going to say, um, I, I think that um, the big question mark over Leo sets for me right now is I don't really understand the marketing or commercial model to get it beyond the niche product into some kind of mass point. So if you look, for example, I, I, I mentioned in my presentation earlier that you know Starlink is, to quote Elon Musk, far from cat flow positive. Right? So at the moment there's no margin there for them to share with a potential retail partner who might actually market and support the service. In, in the in the in the mass market, and I think that as long as that remains the case, uh, this it's always going to remain a bit of a niche sort of product. So I've actually got a, I live outside Castlemaine in Victoria, and I've got a neighbour who actually got Starlink. I'm on Indian satellite, which I find generally adequate for my needs, but he uh, decided he wanted Starlink. Now um, he paid someone to do the installation, and it cost him nearly thirteen hundred dollars, which is a fair whack. You know, I mean, there are people who pay that, but clearly to get beyond uh, a mass, you know, get into a mass market, you're probably going to have to do a little better than that. And that's been held up by all sorts of issues around lack of volume in CPE because of chip shortages. There have been all sorts of problems um, getting the thing, getting, getting things actually up and running in any kind of volume. So to me, I just think there is still some fundamental marketing and, 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 uh, uh, and, Customer support issues are needed for recently to get beyond that kind of niche and maybe sort of enterprise focused yep. um, uh, position into something that's a bit more comprehensive. Uh, well, I pay about $110 for uh, everything, everything is unlimited except video, which is limited to 100 gig, which is fine for me because I just live with my wife, my dad, and the kids there. So, you know, we watch a bit of, we, we can watch a bit of uh, streaming. Uh, we, can, we, we can watch a whole season of the TV show over a month. We're happy. It probably wouldn't be that great if I had kids at home, you know, if they were studying or something like that. You know, we would be looking for more data. We'd probably end up having to pay for it. Uh, um, but over time, you know, fingers crossed, if you're out there, please, um, you know, give us more data as you... It's, it's like, like, about 140 a month from memory. 150 is like 100 meg unlimited. Yeah, that's right. The, so the monthly is not too bad. And it is, it's again, limited. Can't you install yourself? You can, yeah. But a lot of... I, I've found, talking to people who bad fit stores, I've found a lot of people don't. So you... Um, and if you do install yourself, I think the cost is something like 7 or $800. It's still quite high. Sorry. I think it's still reasonably high and install yourself. So let's assume this um, Starlink price comes to the installation comes out. Um, what impact will Starlink and Amazon, their counter project, have in SkyMaster coverage zones? On it? Well, would you use Starlink over NBN? What, what impact will that have on that massive investment in SkyMaster? Um, for me, there's two parts of the service. So there's the element of installation, and there are, you know, I've certainly heard a lot of people who do a very simple installation themselves on SkyMaster. Um, the key for me is about the simplicity of the service. So if Starlink's coming up, you know, out there, uh, Amazon are out there, then MBN have got a lot of work to do with their, um, their offering. 
Um, it is quite a complex offering. It's complex from an RSP perspective, it's certainly complex from a consumer perspective. Um, as these other um, entrants come into the market, they're generating competition, the market will respond. Um, and in fact, I actually think it might disproportionately, um, there might be a reaction in non-satellite areas as well, just through simplicity of the offering. And I think that's one of the key things that we'll miss, and someone spoke about it earlier. Um, you know, when we look at our wholesale providers, fundamentally they're looking for how do we take our cost, and our simple, how do we simplify the offering, um, and new entrants typically come out with a simpler offer, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity through that, more so than technology. Yeah, I, I think that's right, because the, the SkyMuster has this quite complex system of, you know, different prices of different data limits and so on. And I think the, um, the expansion of the fixed network, one of the things it's intended to do is free up capacity on the satellite network so that they're going to simplify that, create potentially even unlimited price down the track. But, and I agree that that's something they're going to have to do as, the, as, the, as these LEO services become more prominent. Um, I should, should uh, venture to say that I, when I talked earlier about it being, being a niche product, even so, we still anticipate something like about 70,000 LEO satellite services in the, in the consumer market, you know, around the middle of the decade. So that's, and we think at that point, SkyMark will be similar. So, you know, we, we are still talking about fairly, you know, something that's competitive with NBN. Um, but perhaps, you know, it might be more, to put it in perspective, both NBN satellite and LEO are probably fairly niche at the moment. Thank you. Um, well, that brings our panel to an end. If you could please um, thank our panelists for their contributions. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that panel session and got something out of it. That's it for Comms Day Live this week. We'll see you next time.